This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. They are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this show without them. So the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days are JPeth, Mick, Tobias, Jonathan, and Meredith. Thank you so much. You are ensuring that this show will have a long life and truly every little bit helps. Sometimes at the end of the month, that little bit of Patreon money is what gets me through because, uh, you know, the cost of living right now is rough and every so often enormous expenses explode, like my car flies apart on the highway or my house catches on fire or my cats have vet bills or whatever the case may be. So every little bit helps. Also, special thanks to all of the patrons who have upgraded to a higher amount. The entry payment for my Patreon is just $1 because I want my extra content to be affordable. I don't want money to ever be a prohibitive factor for anyone. Also, that helps you spread your support around to kind of help other small creators like myself. However, if you are able to give more, I do truly appreciate it. If you do sign up for Patreon, you get access to my weekly podcast, House of Heretics, with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson, and we talk about all sorts of things in the news. We talk about religion. We talk about literature, culture, whatever is on our mind that week. The most recent episode that we did was about a recent kerfuffle in the ex-gay world, which we both have, unfortunately, experience in. If that's the kind of stuff that is interesting to you, then please subscribe. Finally, if you have not already, the vast majority of the conversation about my work takes place on my Discord server. So if you want a community of like-minded people from all sorts of religious backgrounds, we have Satanists, pagans, Christians, all different types of people on there hanging out and talking about interesting things, then please follow the link for my Discord server in the show notes. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Ali Henny. Welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I think we first talked on the podcast back in 2020, but now you have a book coming out, so it is time for us to speak again. Um, yeah. So before we get started, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I am a writer, a social media personality. Um, I'm a minister. I don't cur- currently a Christian minister, I should say. I don't I don't currently minister like as a pastor or anything at a church. Um, but that is something that I've been engaged with for a while. Um, let's see. That I think felt like that pretty much sums it sums it up in a nutshell. Perfect. So Your book is called I Won't Shut Up, and I'm not all the way through with it yet, but it's really interesting and very well written. And just start by telling us about your childhood, your origin story, if you will, because not only is your book kind of a a meditation on growing up as a black woman in America— it is also about 
empowering other black women and it is about um your own personal story would you say that's an accurate description of your book by the way yeah yeah i think i think that you hit the nail on the head it's it's primarily about empowering black women black people who have had similar experiences to me helping them to be able to find their voice the the book goes on my journey uh through my life of finding my voice speaking up against racism and i i talk about how that kind of intersects at various points in my life but it's not just for Black women, I feel like that there are a variety of people, regardless of what your identity is, that you're going to find you're going to find something in this book. It's just that it is written with the experiences of Black women in mind, and and I have in my author's note, you know, I, I talk about I'm you know, a Black cisgender, heterosexual, relatively able-bodied. Christian person who's lived in the in the rural context. I've lived in the mid-Atlantic context. I live in the city now. And so my perspective sort of comes with all of the things that come with that. So there's aspects where my identity intersects with aspects of privilege. And I try to be aware of those as as I write and as I speak on these issues. Um, but then I've also experienced um a reasonable amount, amount of marginalization because of my gender identity and because of my race. Um, I'm also fat. And so I, I think I'm what people call small fat. And I wasn't fat and I haven't been fat um, my my whole life, but that's um, that's also part of who I am. And so I so I experience marginalization and such um, because of because of that also, because of because of my body type. And so I think that anyone who holds some sort of marginalized identity, whether that be as a religious minority, whether that be as a sexual or gender minority, whether that be as a racial minority, whether that be because of disability or some other factor, there's something in this book for you. There are things that you can, principles that you can take and apply to your, to your own situation. You used a word there that is really important, which is intersecting. What, in, in what way are you using that word? What does that word mean? Yeah. So whenever I say intersecting, I mean that, you know, we're not just one thing, right? We are, we are multiple things. And I, I believe it was Kimberly Crenshaw who co coined the term intersectionality. And you can look, look her up, look up the work. I won't, I won't go too deeply into that, into that here, but the way that I sort of use and understand that term is that we're not just one thing. We are multiple things. We, we have our sexual orientation, we have our gender identities, we have our racial or ethnic heritages and backgrounds, we have we have body type, we have ability, we have religion or the lack thereof. There's so many different ways that our that our um identities that that we are comprised of so many different things. And so there are times when those identities that we hold that they that they intersect and so in my own identity um i am a woman 
and I'm a cisgender woman. And so I was assigned female at birth. I the, My gender identity matches my uh, sex that was assigned that was assigned at birth. And so um, I have a different set of experiences than a woman who's trans or someone who is non-binary. Now, my inter- my intersection of identity of being a Black woman is going to be different than, say, a white trans woman or a white non-binary person or an Asian agender person. And so intersectionality, we're, we're basically speaking to all the ways that our different, that our identities intersect and interact with one another and how we, in certain situations, we might experience privilege. And so as a cisgender woman, I have a level of privilege over people who are under the trans umbrella because I'm, I'm not being misgendered all the time. I People aren't policing my use of the bathroom. In fact, I, I can and do frequently use the men's bathroom because the lines are shorter um, because because sometimes the line, the lines are a little bit shorter and whatever but nobody but nobody's nobody's checking me nobody's nobody's policing me nobody's saying I don't I don't feel fear that somehow something's going to happen to me in that type of situation but as a black woman there are there are fears there are marginalizations there are experiences that I that I have um, related to my race and then also also related to my race and my gender. And I, and I talk about some of those experiences that I have in my book. And when we talk about privilege, this is just the way I, I find myself thinking about privilege and, and let me know if it is a helpful way to think about it, which is a, a lack of privilege could mean you still suffer but you're not suffering because of the identity that you are. So I have white skin. Life might be challenging for me. I have lived with depression. I have lived with, you know, various career challenges. You know, just, you know, life is hard for all of us. But those hardships are not because of the color of my skin, right? Now, I have experienced particular hardships because of my sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. because I'm gay. So is that a helpful way to think about privilege? And so like a, a straight person, one could say that a straight person is privileged because that their, their straightness doesn't bring down certain forms of oppression and suffering on them because of their straightness. That's exactly right. Okay. That is, I, I think that you that you really hit the nail on the head with that. Again, privilege doesn't mean that you that you don't have a hard life. You could you could have you could be living in poverty. You could have grown grown up poor. You could have had a ton of adverse childhood experiences. Um, that doesn't those things don't don't change, right? But it's that it's the reason. Essentially, privilege ex- privilege speaks to the reason why people experience certain negative negative things or certain positive things. And so for instance, you know, I'm I'm a Christian. My holidays are celebrated. My people get off work for I don't I don't have to worry about if my husband's going to have work off for for our religious holidays. 
because they're built into the fabric of American society. And so Christmas and Easter, guess what? Uh, we can celebrate, we can, we can travel and visit family, whatever. But our Jewish kin, our Muslim kin, our kin from, from other non-dominant religions, they have experiences where the, the, I remember being a kid that the school cafeteria would serve fish on Fridays during Lent. Now, they're not trying to do that for people celebrating Ramadan. They're not trying to do that for kids celebrating Rosh Hashanah. That's that's privilege. And so anything that I experience that's that's negative in terms of the religious sphere, it's not because I'm a, I'm a Christian, despite what certain conservative people, certain evangelical folks will tell you, like, I, I, I am not being oppressed in, in my religious identity i'm not ha i'm not having to worry about people showing up to my place of worship and well as a black woman as a, a worshiping at a black church i do actually worry about people showing up but just for argument's sake it's not it, it's and that would even be because i was black because so, if somebody comes to shoot, shoots up my church it's because we're black, not because probably not because we're Christian. And so, yeah, I, I think that you, that you speak to that, that you speak to that perfectly, that it's not about, it's not about not having hardship. It's about what the root causes of those hardships are. I think that that's helpful to clarify because so many people's knee jerk reactions to the word privilege is do I, in my experience, one of two things. A, oh, you hate people like me, or mm -hmm. B, you think I haven't suffered, neither right. of which are true. So <laughs> I, I am a religious minority. I am a sexual minority. That doesn't mean that I hate Christians, and that doesn't mean I hate straight people. Mm -hmm. It just means right. that there are these invisible dynamics that mm -hmm. I feel that maybe other people don't, specifically because of those things, whereas there are other uh, advantages that I have that other people don't. Again, because of the color of my skin, because I come from a middle class family, because so on and so. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. So yep. all of that stuff. But but the, so it it it's really helpful to I for me to depersonalize these things. Like this isn't about hatred as much as frustration and sometimes anger can emerge. But it isn't about hatred for me and it isn't about other people having easy or hard lives <laughs> right right exactly um, so tell us some about your your childhood some tell us some about your your uh upbringing what were your parents like what was your family like growing up yeah, so I was raised in a small rural, I guess it technically was a farming community, but it was also kind of a bedroom community for Kansas City um, in Missouri. Kansas City is in Missouri for people who don't know. And it's kind of weird because like, I know that the name of the city is Kansas City, but we don't call it Kansas City. It's Kansas City. Kansas has nothing to do with Kansas City. But anyway, that's that's a whole that's a whole tangent. Um, but I but I grew up I grew up outside of Kansas City, and um, my I had a, a 
I guess relatively large extended family and in fact that's that's who uh that's who helped raise me um my grandmother had seven kids um six of them survived into adulthood and so it was um and then I think like Four of them um, lived in the same town uh, that I that I grew up in, and so I grew up with my grandma, with uh, my my four aunties, and then um, the fifth the fifth auntie um, lived in a town close over. And then my, my my one uncle that I had that was alive whenever I was a kid, um, was alive during my lifetime. He passed away whenever I was fairly young, um, but my grandma helped raise his son. And so I was around um, my my aunties, my my first cousins. Um, that was my my uncles, and I talk about uh, my uncles, my 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 aunts' husbands um, later on in in my book, and 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 kind of what they what they mean to me. And I, I was a bit of a tomboy growing up, and I and I love my aunties. Um, I'm close with um, the two the two aunties that that I have that are that are still alive. And, um, but I also just, my uncles also really just held a, a really special place in my heart. And I used to always listen to them talk and, and sit, and sit around with them. And then, um, one of my uncles in particular was like, was like my dad. Uh, my parents are, my parents are divorced. And so, um, I didn't really see my dad, um, both because of the divorce and then because unfortunately, um, he was incarcerated for a lot of my, uh, teen years into my early 20s and so I didn't see him again I didn't see my dad again until I was uh 26 going on going on 27 years old but yeah I came from a really tight-knit extended extended family where I grew up uh had a small black community um the town that I lived in um was I'll say it was less than 20,000 people and so um it was it was very small town um had a very even smaller black community attended church at the at the what one black church that was in town at the time I was growing up I think that it's grown to like there's three or four uh black churches now uh in that in that little town but it was just one whenever I was growing up and just kind of was living living my life and I I lived there until I was 19 years old and I went off to college um but yeah my my childhood um, there, I have a lot of, a lot of fond memories. It wasn't things, things weren't always, uh, great. And that's sort of what the, the first part of the book is about. Um, like I said, my grandmother, she was a big part of my life. She was, I, I lived with my mom. That was where her, her home, um, was where my address and stuff was, but we as a family spent so much of our time, at my grandmother's house. Um, I lived there. Um, I, I, I feel like that I lived there in some, in some aspects, like part-time, um, again, you know, it's like I would come home or I, like I would be there after school and I would be there until my mom got off work. My mom worked in Kansas city. She wouldn't get home sometimes until, you know, seven, seven thirty at night. And so I would be with my grandmother all day there were lots of times that I would that I would spend the night uh sometimes I would spend multiple nights I I couldn't even keep track of how it's like it's one of those things that's just like you can't even keep track of how much time did I spend there I was there all the time <laughs> um and so whenever my grandmother 
was sick. My grandmother was was a heavy smoker for 50 years and um, she had some smoking related illness that eventually she quit smoking. But after she quit smoking, uh, she had a stroke and then was diagnosed over the course of her, her treatment for the stroke. It was um, discovered that she had lung cancer. And so all that happened whenever between the ages of 10 and 12 for me. And so the first part of my book sort of chronicles a little bit of that journey of my grandmother's cancer diagnosis and then um, some of her health problems and then um, some of the things that happened related to that. And I say in the book that it was that it was my grandmother's illness that first taught me about injustice because can't because cancer is an injustice um in and of itself you know it just cancer it it makes us it makes people sick there's no cure for it it can be an ugly awful illness um and then of course whenever you think of the the narratives even the the broader kind of meta narratives within my grandmother's illness you know smoking was her choice and i don't want to sound like it it wasn't her choice but it was in the larger kind of scope of you have these predatory companies who are creating a product that they knowingly know will get people addicted they're knowingly marketing it to marginalized communities and there's just all this stuff um within that that's this larger injustice that then fed into this small these relative I mean it's not small to me but these relatively smaller injustices of my grandmother having cancer and her being sick and then having these experiences um, within my family where everybody's just, you know, their emotions are on a hair trigger. And so you're getting in trouble for things and that you that you maybe ordinarily wouldn't get in trouble for or stuff is just getting stuff is just getting blown way out of proportion. And then for me, like trying to trying to defend myself and trying to be like, you know, but I, like I'm, I'm really I'm really trying here, but this is also difficult for me. And so it was within that 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 trial um that i realized that injustice is a thing that like there are things in our lives that are not fair and aren't fair and it's out of our locus of control so as an 11 and and 12 turning 12 year old there were things that were going on that were outside of my locus of control but then like I'm but then I'm having to to deal with people's responses. I'm having to deal with people's reactions. I'm having to deal with harm that I unwittingly caused or that was caused to me and and trying to process all trying to process all of that as a young person and then just sort of coming to the conclusion at a, at a young age that like there are things in the world that are that are just wrong. Mm. Yeah, and you talk about this in the book how, like once you start to see injustice, once you start to wake up to the reality of injustice, you just see it everywhere because it is everywhere and it trickles down to everywhere. And I guess the the question from there is both as a child, but also just like now as an adult, um, how do you, while waking up, to the reality of injustice and just the unmitigated horrors and suffering in this world um, from big 
awful calamities all the way down to like the small invisible daily sufferings of ordinary people. Um, how, how do you wake up to that while also maintaining hope? Because that, like that sounds like it was the struggle that you had growing up. Like, here is this horrible injustice of cancer, and, and yet you still have to somehow live your life, right? You still have to somehow get up in the morning and go to school. And as adults, we still have to, like, somehow get up in the morning, take care of our families, get to work, do a job, come home, just all the things. It doesn't stop, <laughs> right? And so how, yeah. so how do you... How does one maintain hope while acknowledging and being aware of the injustices? Well, I think that it is the hope of things getting better. And if not things getting better, because some things don't get better. Like my grandma didn't didn't get better. My my grandma died whenever whenever I was 12 and she died of cancer. And so there was no, there was no like hope within that. There was no hope that she was going to somehow miraculously get better. There was nothing that they could do. She had so many other health issues. There was nothing that they could do except they tried a little bit of radiation. It helped a little bit, but there was nothing that they could, that they could do. So it was, so it was essentially her, the end of her life was sort of about keeping her comfortable and until until she passed. And so in that type of situation, like sometimes there, there are situations where it it might not necessarily get better as in the situation completely, completely turns around. Um, but for me, um, in that particular situation, the hope that things would change in some in some way. And so the, the change in that particular situation was that she passed on, but her passing on, and at the time it was difficult. I'm not gonna be like, oh yes, I, like my grandmother passed on and I was completely okay with that and it was whatever. No, like that that wasn't that wasn't it. Um but there but it was time and hope and even um coming to the realization that she wasn't in pain anymore that she that she wasn't suffering anymore and then also for me um my faith really played into this um in a, in a very important way in having in just having hope leaning on the spiritual leaning on the spiritual resources um to be able to cultivate that um within myself but you know and i understand that not everybody that not everybody has a particular type of faith that maybe would that maybe they would be like oh you know i can i can uh, i can go and i can turn to uh, rituals or i can uh, turn to a sacred text or something like that but even within yourself i think um generating that hope from from within yourself that even if a situation is difficult even as there's marginalization something can change. And that change again, it might be something that is painful that you have to that you have to walk through. It might be something painful that hurts, but it's being able to find it's being able to find something about that that you can say, okay, well, at least it's it, it was this and at least it was this and not and not 
that and just holding on to and holding on to that and and letting and letting that strengthen you for me um with my with my grandmother it was I, I had a dream not very long after she had passed and it was a it was a dream that that very much that it disturbed me you know I, I saw her it was kind of like you know she she had passed on and I knew that she had passed on but she was still there and she was st she was still with us and she was still suffering and so it was like you know we kept on trying to tell like grandma you know you could you just you can go to heaven and I remember telling my mom this and my mom was just sort of like you know she um quoted like this uh my, my, my she was dating a man at the time um, who's Jamaican and he used to say that like dreams don't walk straight and so she quoted that that Jamaican proverb to me and it was like oh, okay dreams don't walk straight and so she was telling me she was like you know like your grandma your grandma isn't isn't suffering anymore she doesn't have cancer anymore it's okay and that was something that I was able to in that moment um have hope for but then even as an adult it's like oh yeah like I like I realized you know everything that you you look at, at things in hindsight and you realize wow that was that was really freaking awful and like I'm glad that that this that this situation that as painful as it was to walk through I'm glad that it changed you talk about in terms of injustice I have hope that one day um they're going to one day if it's not my children because it probably won't be my children I, I have two kids um who are uh nine and six it probably won't be in their lifetime but I have hope that my grandchildren and if not my grandchildren my great-grandchildren if not my great-grandchildren my great-great-grandchildren but somewhere along the line black people are not going to be in the same position that we've been in and that hope that I have I know that there are ancestors that I have who, you know, I'm somebody's great, great, great grandchild, um, who somebody in slavery is, you know, great, great, great grandchild or great, 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 great grandchild, so on and so forth, that they experienced slavery. And I'm living the life that they could only, that they could have only hoped for, that they could, that could have only been in, in their wildest of imaginations. And so their situation didn't change but it gave them, but their hope, I think, gave them the ability uh, to to keep to keep pressing on. So sometimes we just we just got to hold on to something mm. and, and and hope that it that it gets better. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And growing up in your family, what did you what did your family try to instill in you or teach you about being black in America? Because I'm sure that they were aware of the prejudices and harms that could come down on you as a black girl. So what what messages did they warn you about? What did they warn you about? What did they tell you about? What did they try to teach you to protect you in this system? That's a that's an excellent question. You know, I think that the context that I grew up in, being in a predominantly white town, being in a rural area. So we we lived in, a, in an area that, you know, it wasn't some places you go, you know, it's it's one one city kind of or one city or small town kind of bleeds into the next thing, kind of bleeds into the next thing. You know, I, I, li I live in Chicago. I live actually in the city of Chicago. And I think about Chicago land and how, you know, you drive a certain point and you kind of question like, am I 
are, are we still in the city or then and then you kind of because because it just kind of runs one into another well where i'm from you know where where i'm from is surrounded by by cornfields and wheat fields and soybeans and and all that and all that stuff um and lands pastures you know for for mostly mostly cows and everything and so there's a there's a lot of ways that you can that you can kind of get in trouble in that type in that type of situation so you know if you're going out to to visit somebody if you're going out to visit someone's someone's house or whatever um you got to be careful about about where you're going and being and being situationally aware you know i remember this is a little bit this isn't so much childhood more uh, uh, teenage young adult years but i remember uh getting ready to drive to college and my mom being like, okay, you know, if your car breaks down in this town on the, or this spot or whatever, do not get out of your car. Do not call, <laughs> do not call the police. Call me and we'll, and we'll come get you because you know, don't like, don't like, don't get out of your car. Don't talk to people. Don't whatever. Drive the speed limit whenever you go through this, go through this area because they'll pull you because, because they'll pull you over and they'll stop you and they'll, and they'll give, and you don't want to give them a reason as a little girl, you know, it was walking, walking through the, the grocery store or through Walmart, something like that. And my mom would be like, get your hands out your pocket. Like get your, get your hands out of your pocket. Um, because they, we don't want people thinking that you're trying to steal something. And so, you know, there are ways, you know, that I would see other kids acting and interacting in public that it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't act or interact that way because it would reflect poorly on me, on my family, on the black community or whatever. Um, my family was just, we were very, I felt like that we were highly aware of the prejudices of people around us. And sometimes uh, we joked about those prejudices. Sometimes, you know, you, you sometimes you can't help but just kind of adopt kind of a, a morbid sort of sense of humor about it. Um, you know, I remember one time um, there was a domestic incident at, I, I was at one of my auntie's house and there was a domestic incident across the street. And so um, I can't, I think it got bad enough that one, that one of my cousins or whatever went inside and um, called the police because we were concerned about, it was a white woman, um, a, a white couple that lived across the street from my auntie. We were concerned about, we were concerned about the woman. And so I think somebody finally called the police or whatever on it. But anyway, the police came up to, drove up the the, the uh, street and they were looking over at us and we were sitting on the, we were all sitting on the porch and we were looking at them <laughs> and we were, and we were looking, we were looking at the police. And so then um, finally my, my uncle um, who was a, was a city councilman um, in the, in the town that we were in, um, he went out and talked to the to the police officer. And once the police officer like recognized him and was like, oh, this probably isn't happening. Isn't this? Isn't this? And so he was telling him like, yes, it was across the street or whatever. Well, after all that was it's happening. It's not us, in other words. It's it, the house. It's, it's, it's the white people. It's the white people across the street. <laughs> it's the white people across the street. Oh, my God. So. So after after this and a, so after this, like by the the my uncle talked to the my uncle talked to the the police officer, and the police officer went across the street, checked on the woman. Cop cop went um, went down the street. Well, then 
after the cop was gone, my one of my other uncles makes a joke about it, <laughs> makes a joke about like basically about how the police thought that it was all of us sitting out here on a porch. Of course, you know, there's stereotypes about black people sitting on porches. I won't, I won't explain, I won't tell the joke, nor will I explain it, but you can use your imagination there as to, as to what my uncle um, said. Um, and we, and we all started laughing. <laughs> we all started laughing about it because it was, because it was funny. And so, and, and we all were laughing. We're going back and forth about it because again, you know, it was like, it's not us because the, the assumption was that it was us um but it's like it's not us it's, it's the white people across the street and so y'all like like this is them not us and so yeah and so you you learn um you learn pretty early on that like you're just different and I mean I grew up with some some black folks that grow up in those types of contexts I think this is especially true for black people who grew up in the suburbs but I think it's it's uh it can be true regardless of where you are sometimes if you grow up around white folks um sometimes there are people who are kind of invested in respectability politics you know there's black people who are invested in respectability politics and so black people sometimes or, or minorities will sometimes eschew like they'll, they'll they don't want the culture they don't want you to to they don't want you to talk a certain way they don't want you to dress a certain way they don't want you to listen to a certain type of music because it's a it's a protection you know black parents or, or black relatives are trying to protect you and so they want you to to kind of be in the white spaces and to into this that and the third so that way to, to assimilate in other way in, in other words um they want you to assimilate so as as in the hopes that you will experience less oppression and you maybe do experience less oppression but i wouldn't even say it's less oppression i think you're just being oppressed in different uh, being oppressed in different ways and sometimes being oppressed in ways that you don't even recognize well my family wasn't really um we weren't really about assimilation um there definitely were some aspects you know my mom was the first one in our family uh to to go to college and to and to graduate um from college and so my mom in a lot of and she worked in the education system where i grew up and so in a lot of ways my mom um i had advantages because my mom knew how to speak the language she knew she had the cheat codes basically and so there were things that she instilled in me that that helped me to be able to excel but then at the same but at the same time it wasn't it wasn't that at the expense of my blackness and my sense of self as a as a black person and that was something that i was just always always aware of there was never a moment in my life that i ever felt i was anything other than black and we you know we listened we listened to black music we watched the black tv shows anything you know i, I talk about like anytime um Anytime, you know, Michael Jackson was doing something or Prince was doing something or, or some famous black person was doing something, we were right there in front of the television because the television back in the in, in rural Missouri in the 90s, that was the only that was like our window out of where we were at. And so like we were we were front and center for anything, um, anything black that was that was going on and stuff. And so that was something that was just that was just really important to me, really important to my to my growth and my identity. Yeah. So it sounds like. So it sounds like you were just way more. Cognizant of of your identity and the reputation of people who share that identity in a way that 
white kids just have zero comprehension of. Like, maybe they're aware of having to represent their family, like if their father is a pastor, oh, you have to not reflect badly on your pastor father or whatever the case may be. But in terms of your whole race, that is a mm. level of pressure that I feel like white kids just have no comprehension of. Yeah, and especially in like a context of a of a predominantly white town mm. where you are or, or the context or a context where people are a lot of people you're their only exposure to blackness you're there you are like the lot like they might have exposure to blackness through tv shows through stereotypes through whatever but you are literally the only black person or the first black person that if you grow if you grow up there you're sometimes the first black person that people that white people know that white people interact with and so yeah there is a there's a tremendous amount of of not bringing shame <coughs> excuse me there, there's a tremendous amount of not bringing shame of course you know to your family don't don't embarrass us like don't whatever and i think that a lot of people kind of carry some, some a lot of families have that dynamic of like you know go out and, and do us proud you know you're a henny do us proud my, my husband's family's not like that i'm just throwing that throwing that out there i'm not like that with my kids um but but we but some but some families you know are like that um but that's it but it's a whole other different ball of wax whenever it's whenever you realize that it's not just you but it's but it's you and everybody else and that's actually something that i that i bring up um in the in the book that there was an, an incident that happened whenever i was in fifth grade um that i realized like the the way that i acted in this in this incident i realized oh my gosh i'm not just representing me I'm representing all of the black kids in fifth grade, plus all of the black kids in my school. And I just sat here and I just let these kids make a fool of me. I just, I just let these white kids make a fool of me. And there was like this racial component to it that I didn't realize happened at first. I didn't realize there was a racial component to it. But then later on, I did like later on within the incident, I realized, oh my gosh, there's a racial component to this. And I completely have failed. I have completely have dropped the ball. And yeah, that, that's something that, that I, even the dynamic that I get into um, and I won't shut up. Um, talk about what you call in the book, the moment, the moment oh, when, the moment, the moment when I forget the exact wording that you use, but the moment when you realize that when the moment when a white person just reveals their racism to you in a galling way and how it kind of shapes things from there on out in your life. And you describe this moment as as a, a kind of a, a universal thing that a lot of black people share is like that that moment when things changed yeah so the the moment i think you did a good job of summer of summarizing it and i'm terrible at quoting myself from my from my own book that i wrote so i won't even try to, to quote myself uh, because I, i'm terrible like i can't like, I, I can't remember quotes i can't even remember stuff that i wrote uh, but i did but i did write it i promise um but essentially like this i this concept of the moment is this thing that I feel like is nearly universal 
for black people, but particularly it's, it's almost nearly universal for black people who've, who've grown up or who spend a significant time in white space where there's like, before that you think, okay, yeah, you know, you might be aware of racism. You might be aware of race. You might be aware of some racial dynamics, but it's never really affected you or you've never really seen it in in action and in, and in play. And then all of a sudden somebody does something that just, they show their, in all of the racism, they're playing their entire racist, racist hand. And you're just left being like, oh my goodness, I, that, that was a racism. And you're just, and, and it's, and it's bewildering. Um, a lot of black people experience this whenever they're, whenever they're younger, like in their formative years, like, you know, elementary school, primary age, you know, even preschool, they might experience that. Some Black folks don't experience it until they're much older. Some experience it as teens. Some don't experience it until they're they're adults. But the thing that this moment has has in common is that it's is that it is a moment of of no return. So like you, you where you had a sense of innocence about you. Again, you might not be, and and it, it might not be that you didn't that you weren't aware of racism. It's just that it comes in a way that is just completely catches you off guard. And and usually it's in a situation and from people that you trust. That's the other aspect of it is that like, and so for me, um, when when I share about the moment in in my book, it's it's fifth grade me. I was aware, I was aware of racism. I was aware of slavery. I knew, I knew all, like I knew all this stuff. I, I knew about the experiences. My mom had told me about her experiences as, as a kid. I had been, I had even had been, had been, you know, called, called the N-word um, before. You know, the first time I was called an N-word, I was in, I was in, in uh, first grade. And that was, for me, that was like the first moment was like, Oh wow, this kid that I'm that I was friends with and that we hung out with, all of a sudden they they call me the N-word. Wow. Like that, like like I guess we can't be friends anymore because you said something like that, like that crosses a that crosses a line. I can't really talk to you like that anymore. Um, but but fifth grade, me experiencing this moment of these people, these people made a bet with me and I took the bait and and took the bet and then ended up realizing that there was like this humiliation component that was also gendered and racialized and that moment was like whenever, whenever I realized that it just it hit me like a ton of bricks and I realized and it changed and it forever changed my perception of the person that what that was the the ringleader of it it forever changed my perception of him um it for it forever um changed even how i interacted um with some of my with some of my classmates how i thought about myself and a lot of people a lot of black people have have that moment where it's like racism goes from being this sort of um nebulous concept of white people don't like black people and they do think mean things to black people to it's my white people it's not just like white people <laughs> it's it's my white people my friends my teacher my classmate my person that is at my place of worship my 
bus driver, my garbage person, my whatever. And you realize that like, oh, this is, this can also happen to me. Mm. Yeah. And it, and another thing that you describe in the book is, is like the blase way they just carry on. Like, oh, like it was nothing. Like it, and, and they just go right back to talking the way they were before they dropped this horrible thing on you. And you are left there with your whole world and relationships altered. And they're just talking as if nothing happened. And it's almost like gaslighting. Yeah. I mean, it isn't almost like it is. It just, it, it, is. it is. And you know, what's, what is so interesting about that dynamic that you speak to is that people often don't realize what they did or they realize what they did and it doesn't make a difference to them. Like they, like there, there are people. So like, you know, I think about, and I, and this is something that I did not include in this book. Um, and I won't tell the whole story um, of the first time that I was called the N word, the kid literally just used it in a sentence, just said, said something to me, use the N word toward me. And it wasn't like, you know, he was angry and like, you know, called me. It was, he literally just used it in a sentence and kept on keeping on. It was like, what? And the incident I talk about in the book. Now, this this incident, the, the kid that was that was using the racial slurs, it was intentional, it was on purpose, it was aggressive, it was like like there there was an aspect to it, but literally within it, he just kept on going. It was just like, oh hey, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say this, I'm just gonna say these words to you to try to shut you up because you're because you're talking and I don't want you to talk. Like literally that was a that was the thing. And so I'm gonna shut you up and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call you these words and then maybe you'll leave me, you'll leave me alone. But it was just like there was there was nothing else. So it wasn't like he used those words and then like he never talked to me again. It was he never like he used those words and never and never talked to me and never talked to me again. Um, he used those words and then you know we're still we're still in classes together. That happened in fifth grade. We graduated together, so we had so we had from the time we were eleven to the time we were eighteen um, of of interacting of all this other type of all this other type of stuff, and it was just like. You know, he may or may not even remember that incident, but I will, but I will never forget it. Mm. I remember I, I had an experience and I'm wondering if, if you relate to it as well, if it kind of rhymes with your experience where it's almost like, so being, being gay, I mean, there are similar experiences where mm -hmm. someone you think is close or a classmate or a family member says something horrific to you and it just shifts the entire landscape for you shifts the entire world um you know i've been called the f slur and all all mm -hmm. the various things and mm -hmm. but then it's like that that carries with you into adulthood and yeah. people who aren't gay have a hard time understanding the emotional reactions that I've had in the past to what mm -hmm. to them seem like small things. So mm -hmm. example, when um, I was at work, a customer, this is, this is a weird thing that, that people have a hard time with. 
um, knowing what to call a gay person's partner. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> and it's really funny. It's really hilarious. I choose to see it as funny. But somewhat, you know, a customer came up to, and she was being super sweet. This was at work. I, I, worked in, I work in retail. This customer comes up to me and is just like, how's how's your how's your lover <laughs> like reaching just not knowing what to say oh and then goodness. and then settling on the most awkward term <laughs> that she could yeah. possibly use yeah right and so it's hilarious but also it was infuriating at the mm-hmm. t- it was it, it was an infuriating moment and trying to express to other people who weren't gay why it was infuriating and they were like whoa why are you reacting this way what what is why are you reacting why are you having such a huge reaction to this it was just it was just a mistake and i'm like yes it it was just a mistake i don't but but what i couldn't communicate was that it was like a compound fracture of mm-hmm. just pressure that it's like that that pressure of uh put the the application of too much pressure on a bone again and again and again and again and again through your life until a little thing that to other people looks innocuous comes up and because it those words rhyme with the bullshit that you were told when you were 10 years old because it 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 resonates because it 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 just breaks and and then people around you think you're fucking crazy sorry i'm swearing think no, you're okay. <laughs> and then people around you think you're crazy because you're having such a big reaction to what seems to them to be so small but it's a it isn't about that one incident it's a lifetime of people saying either outright homophobic things or just weird clueless things and it all builds up into like this one big pain and i'm wondering if you relate to that (laughs) oh yeah absolutely and i think in the situation that you just just shared like that word is loaded it's like your your love your lover so like if you talk about somebody being your lover like it's not just like oh you know Oh, we're we're the best of friends. Like, you know, that, that whole that whole trope of like, oh, these are two best friends that that shared a one-room house in history. Like, you know, they shared a one-room house, but they were but they were best friends. There's an implication behind it of lover that's sexual. And so then as a sexual minority, as a gay man, your entire existence is sexualized. And so this person is coming up and that, and that sexualization is then used to oppress you. So it's like, we were seeing all, we're seeing with all the bull going on um, in Tennessee and in all the, in in Missouri and all these other places We're we're seeing this where it's like your existence is being sexualized. You're just like, yo, I'm just out here trying to live. And then your experience is being sexualized. And then people are, are then using like language that then, that, that then is like overtly sexual in a lot of ways has a sexual connotation to it in describing something as innocuous as your partner and it's like it's like i am not just my sexual appetites i am not ju- and it's and it's so and it's so it's so reductive in a way and that that is very so, like there's a there's a language 
to homophobia. There's a lexicon. There's there's a there there are words that people say that even if they don't mean them to to even if they're not saying them to do harm, there's a, there are words and phrases that people use that come out of their homophobia. And so whenever you hear those words and phrases, those words and phrases bring up all that all that harm. It brings up all of those things because there's a because there is a history around there's a history and a context well whenever we talk about racists it's is that there's a very similar thing there is a lexicon of racism and so for instance you know people like my whole life people will talk about you know, how how articulate i am i under i understand you know i i don't feel particularly articulate at times, but I understand that what people are trying to convey is you speak well and you speak in a way that is easily understood. You communicate, I like what you have to say. I like hearing your speaking voice, like whatever. Like there, there are people who are saying who are saying that. And whenever they say articulate, that's what they mean. Unfortunately, <laughs> that yes. phrase, that that exact phrase is people are use use that exact phrase to mean, oh wow, you know, I expected you to speak Ebonics and you don't speak Ebonics. You speak general English. Good for you. You are so articulate. Oh my goodness. I thought I thought that I wasn't going to be able to understand you because you because you would be speaking Ebonics or I thought I wouldn't understand you because your speech isn't quote unquote clear by by my by my definitions and standards of how of how English should be spoken. And there are people who who use that phrase that that phrase is is frustrating. So somebody using that phrase for me, um, even if it might be true, it comes with all of that baggage of there are times that I was told that I was that I was articulate and the people were saying that I was articulate and yeah they might have meant it but they but there was also a racial component to it because they didn't expect somebody who looked like me to to speak the way that I did and to have a command of the English language the way that I do and that is and that is hurtful because there's a lot of bedrock assumptions that come with that language and so yes it can absolutely be be infuriating and i think that you know a lot of times people people who are privileged in certain aspects or people who just ride through life with like a a, a, a large amount of privilege and don't have to think about these types of things you know you as a gay man you're you're white and you're gay so you understand that like there are there are things that people say that just are infuriating that just are there are things that it's like you just don't say that to people and we and and we we have that as black people that it's like there are things that you just don't say to a black person there's just like a there's situational awareness that you just there are things that you just have to that you have to learn if you are not black that you do not get to say or do you don't get to come up to me and just touch my hair i am not a petting zoo I am not, I am not an animal in a petting zoo. And I don't care how many years far removed from slavery we are. Whenever I feel your hands in my hair, I am feeling at an epigenetic level 
the ways that my ancestors and those around them were touched and fondled and looked at to to be purchased as chattel and that does not that does not feel good to me in my body for a white person to come up and put their hands in my hair i don't care what your intention is there is something there have been times whenever people have asked and there have been times where people have asked and i have acquiesced i've been like okay i don't want to like i like I don't want to start no shit. So I'm just going to say this. Like, like I'm just, I'm just going to let them, I'm just going to let them do it. But it feels, it feels humiliating. It's like, you're touching, you are touching my hair. I don't see you touching anybody else's. I don't see you asking to touch anyone else's hair, but you're touching my hair. And this really feels dehumanizing. And I really wish that people wouldn't, wouldn't ask me this and and wish that people wouldn't whatever and so yeah like that that absolutely rhymes and i think that you can translate that you can translate that to religion you could translate that to ability you can translate that to social class you can translate that to to rich people talking about poor talking about poor people saying things like like oh oh you know oh so did you so did you grow up in a trailer park like, did you like, like, what was that? Did, did y'all have roaches? Like, what was, what was that? What was that like? Like, there's an aspect where things like, where, where you can say things to people that are just dehumanizing, that are just things that are just like, again, you know, just don't, don't say that stuff. And I think that the, uh, the last thing I'll say about that is I think that the experience of then trying to say it to other people who don't understand, you articulated that so well. You said that so well that it's, that it's like people don't understand that whenever you hold certain identities, that there are certain things that that happen. And it's not just that one thing that happened, like you said, it's the things that have been happening to you your whole entire life that yes, this one person, it's just, it's one more thing, but it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. And you're just like, I, I can't, I can't anymore. And so then oftentimes I see this so much with race and racism where it's like, yeah, this person said that I was articulate and people are like, what? Why would you be upset about that? They were complimenting you and they're, or they're trying to like explain the situation to me. Like I haven't thought of all the positive ways that the person could have meant it, but it still hurt my feelings. It was still upsetting. And people just, people, it, it just, it's, it's wild how people that the go-to reaction often with people within privilege, the go-to action is to try to absolve the person who did wrong and be like, oh, well, they didn't mean it. And I think that some of that is like, well, they didn't mean it because I might make a mistake. And so I want, so I might make a mistake. I might not know. And so I want to know that I'm, I want you to be okay with them. Cause I also want you to be okay with me whenever, whenever I make a mistake or whenever I don't know things or whatever, but it, but I, it's 100% that way i think that this is helpful for um for people just to practice some you know cognitive empathy and emotional empathy where i don't know what's a what's a good way to frame this okay so like in a in a relationship in a in a romantic relationship there is that moment where say you you don't close the cabinet door and this results in a massive blow up between you and your partner because they prefer the cabinet door closed, but you that just doesn't really matter to you and you keep forgetting. Right. OK. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about the cabinet door. It mm -hmm. was about the cabinet door 
and so much more. I don't mean to you yeah. know, diminish, diminish this, uh, you know, diminish the other things yeah. that we're using this as a metaphor for, but it's just like, I, there is this whole history in a relationship of other things that that dirty counter is representative of. Yes. And then your partner explodes, but it isn't just about that thing. It's also mm-hmm. about this big history in a relationship. So I find it helpful to think about it like that, where if I see someone or if I myself have a big reaction to what to other people seem like a small thing, like, you know, the what you were just saying with the, uh, you know, articulate thing, you know, another person would be like, Oh, what what the hell? I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it that mm-hmm. way. Can't you just see mm-hmm. the way? It isn't about that. It's about the whole fucking history of, <laughs> of that and how you have lived with that and experienced it again and again and the way yes. it interconnects and of and I think people can I I I trust that if people apply their their empathetic reasoning to that, that they can get why people react the way they do to certain things. And even if it seems like an out-of-proportion reaction, there's a reason why that is the case. There Mm -hmm. is a reason why. Yes. And so even if it isn't immediately evident why it's there, or if it isn't immediately evident to you, dear listener, it is helpful to just assume Oh, there. This is the tip of an iceberg, and there's the mm-hmm. that ninety percent of history here that this is in response to. Um, I have I have one last question. Oh, by before we move on, though, do you think that's a good description? Do you think that's a healthy oh, yeah. way of thinking that, about it? That's a that's absolutely. I think that 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 is a, a healthy healthy way of of thinking about it. That it's not just about the one thing; it's about all of the things and they're all coming together and, and converging in this one moment that like, I, and I'm upset <laughs> because yeah. it wasn't just that you didn't clean off the counter is that you never clean off the counter. And it's that I'm triggered because I grew up in a house that had dirty counters and I don't want to have dirty counters. And like, and then yeah. There's, yeah and, it, and I was the one who had to clean those counters at 3am yes. when I should have been in bed and you were, yeah. And it, all of that. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another question, though. So you are also a Christian. We love Christians on this podcast. We are not anti, even though I am a Satanist, I am, and I am a minister of Satan and the Satanic Temple, and there are a lot of Satanists in uh, this community as well as pagans and atheists and so on. Uh, this is not an anti-Christian podcast, um, but I want to ask you about your faith, and because Christianity does not necessarily have a great legacy in terms of injustice. Mm-hmm. And so what does your Christianity look like in in contrast to maybe what a lot of people think of when they think of Christianity? Yeah, so, you know, something that I have been gifted with as a Black Christian is a, a tradition of a Christianity, of a Jesus that, liberates people that uh, like the the Jesus that I grew up with the Jesus that I know that I understand is a Jesus that wants for people to be free 
is a Jesus that loves everyone and wants everyone to be free and doesn't want for people um, to experience harm. And I think a lot of Christians would probably agree with that on um, a surface level. But in praxis, for me, what that looks like is Jesus being inclusive, um, Jesus being God, being someone who is more concerned about a, a lot of people eating at the table, sitting at the table and everybody eating period, regardless if they're, if they're sitting at the table, if they're chilling at their house on a t- at, eating at a TV tray, whatever, whatever it is, you know, if they're, if they're in the restaurant, if they're wherever in the car, wherever that, that, that they're eating, um, that's, that's the type of God that I believe in. Um, that's the type of Jesus that, that I serve. And, um, you know, my faith is something that, <coughs> excuse me, is something that is um, very important to me. And this is, and this is whenever you start talking about justice, particularly like as a as a black person where um it's like well wasn't christianity used or misused against against black people um to enslave them and that that there is truth in that so there's a lot more I'll, i will try not to get too like you know my my master of divinity and the theology and all that coming in here um but that criticism of Christianity, as far as it comes to Black people, there is truth to it. But at the same time, if there's truth to it, it's a, it's a little bit misleading um, because Christianity existed in Africa um, even before it existed in Europe. It existed in Africa um, at the same time contemporaneously with Christianity in Europe. Um, there are whole branches of a lot of the, the Christianity that we see in America is Western Christianity. It's Christianity that was descended, Christianity in all its various branches, descended from what we would call Roman Catholicism. There's a whole other branch of Christianity that's called, quote, orthodoxy or whatever. That's that's um, like, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church. You talk about Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the, the Ethiopian Church, the Coptic Church. There are whole groups of Christians that were not informed by Western thought, by Western movements and whatever. And so and those and those people existed um, and were re- religious minority groups even on the continent of Africa. And so there were people who knew about Jesus, who knew about Christianity, even if they didn't practice it, they had they had some knowledge of it before they were enslaved. So that's so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, and that's not to say that that I don't want to do the the thing that some black Christians do and are like, oh yes, black Christians were black people were Christians before. There were some who were and there were a lot who weren't. Um and pro- and and I'm not sure, you know, I would I would dare say and I could be wrong about this, but I would dare say that the majority of the Christians who were enslaved from Western Africa probably were not Christians probably did not did not practice Christianity in the way that we understand it, even if they maybe had heard about Jesus or had some or had some familiarity with it. But with all that said, the slaveholders who wouldn't let who would who would preach the gospel and would and use Christianity even to trick and deceive people. There's there's somebody there's a there's a story. Uh, I think believe it's a docu. It's not just a story. It's a documented thing of a guy with a ship called Jesus, and he would talk about Jesus and then tell people come to Jesus um, and on the coast of Africa, and they would get on Jesus the the slave ship and be enslaved. And that's that that's wrong. That's a bastardization of everything that Christianity stands for. And here 
in the United States, uh, whenever whenever people the, the slaveholder religion um, was used to marginalize, was used to oppress. They had whole entire slave Bibles that they created that they took all the passages about slavery, all the or all the things about like God being like, oh, this is this is wrong. Slaves get free, like the book of Exodus, that type of stuff. They removed all those things from the Bible and just handed them stuff that was like slaves obey your masters. But the slaves that were being told to obey their masters weren't chattel slaves. They were people who could get free. And that's a whole other cultural thing to, to talk about. But within all of that, people who were Black and decided to be Christian, who they saw something in the, in the, the telling of the stories from the scriptures, in what scriptures they had access to. They read stories of like Moses in Exodus and, you know, like, like let my people go, Pharaoh, let my people go, that whole, that whole joint. Those people read those stories. Those people read a lot of other stories. They read about Jesus and they were like, oh, we want to serve that person. <laughs> we we don't think that the guy, and so there's, so there was like the slavehold religion and then there was the religion of the people and those two things of the black enslaved people. And those were two completely different things. And even, and that carries through even today. The civil rights movement, you had, the, the Christianity of the Ku Klux Klan, the, the Christianity of the White Citizens Council, the Christianity of the people who were saying races shouldn't mix, so we got to have segregation. And then you had the faith of people like Martin Luther King, people like Ralph Abernathy, people like uh, John Lewis, like you had you had that Christianity. And in that black Christianity, that again was one of liberation. So for me, I see myself within the tradition of my forebears and of my ancestors that it's not it's not white Jesus for me. The Jesus that I serve is a is a brown skin man, um, was, was a brown skin Jewish man um, who understood, uh, you know, who who understood being executed by the state. And so that's that's you know, a long-winded explanation to get to to get to that. Um I I see myself, my my Christianity, my my faith or whatever is really in is really informed by the message of of life and and liberation and everybody having their being their being abundant life. And that's much different than um, some of the white Jesus swill that a lot of that that has people you know white white Jesus has people out here being like you know calling calling uh, drag queens groomers like that's like but but and so I say all that to say that it's not just like oh not it not me I don't have to deal with those people because they are within my tradition they are my they are my faith kin. I feel a certain responsibility to the people who are like, oh yes, we're going to be, we're going to be awful to gay people. We're going to be awful to trans people. We're going to, we're going to be bigoted and oppressed in many, bigoted, bigoted and oppressive in many other ways. I still have a responsibility as a person within that faith tradition to say, no, that isn't right. <laughs> and to call, and to call that out and to dismantle that and that's and that's something um that i that i really hope to do i really i really hope to bring a lot of people out of the darkness of white american jesus and white american you know 
cis hetero prefer, per, uh, um, preferring Jesus and into a, a type people who are within that tradition don't not trying to evangelize people who, who don't care to be part of that but people who bring them out of that darkness and into something that is that is life-giving and that is and that is way more life-giving than than what it is right now mm. it's important work and um one one last question tell me about the beautiful icon that's on the wall behind you People can't oh. see it. People can't see it. But I've been looking because this is audio only. But for this entire interview, I've been looking at what looks like a gorgeous icon on the wall behind you. And I'm wondering if there's a story behind it. Yeah. So that's Fannie Lou Hamer. And you probably can't. Let's see if I can. I'll, I'll adjust there here. Oh, there's also yeah. Martin Luther King. That is um, it's it's a mugshot is Martin Luther King's mugshot, but made into an icon. So he has the the halo is called a nimbus um, behind him in his mugshot. And I also have you can't see it because it's on the opposite wall. But I also have an icon of John Lewis, um, of the famous civil rights uh uh, representative who passed away a few years ago, Frederick Douglass um, of Moses the Black, who was um, what was called like a desert father um, early in church history. And then um, also of Mahalia Jackson, um, who's a gospel singer. And then I have a candle that has that has icons of Marsha P. Johnson and um, uh, Maya Angelou. And um, those are all, all those icons are uh, by an individual um, his name's Kelly Lattimore. Um, so yeah, so I, I have these these icons. He's these black. He does more than he's he's a white man. He does more um, than just black people. But I have um, oh, I also have uh, the saints of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's a multicultural thing of the people who who marched across the bridge at Selma. And so yeah, I, I try to. This is again a reflection of my of my faith in seeing people as saints that maybe other people wouldn't I mean I think some people would think of you know Martin Luther King as a saint but like the juxtaposition of him being incarcerated in the picture in the in the icon and um you know, having people like Marsha P Johnson who people wouldn't think of who certain aspects certain Christians wouldn't think of her um as a as you know, a saint or something like that, but she was, she's the, the saint of, of the Stonewall riot. And so, and, and so I, I have those and occasionally um, use those in, use those, use my candles and stuff in, in prayer, I actually lit my, uh, my Angelou uh, candle. Um, there's a point when I uh, reference her later on in the book. And um, I actually, once that, once that sort of came to me, once that revelation of her words came to me, I actually, actually lit my, said, said a prayer and lit my candle of her in, in honor of that wisdom that I believe uh, came, came from her. And so, yeah. Amazing. Well, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and your story with us. Uh, for people who want to find you online and find out more about the work you do, where can they do that? 
Yeah, so you can find me. I'm also on Patreon. So after you, uh, you know, if you have some left over um, from from giving to this to this wonderful show, um, I'm there. I'm on Facebook. Um, every pretty much everything is my name um, in some shape, form, or fashion. I'm on Facebook. I'm on um, Instagram at Allie Henny. Um, I'm on uh, TikTok as the Allie Henny. I'm on. Uh, Twitter as the armchair com and the armchair com is short for the armchair commentary, which is my personal blog that I don't post nearly enough to, but it's there and it exists and um, you could read it, like pay attention to the dates that you're reading stuff. I feel <laughs> like I've tried to take stuff down that I, that I was like, Oh, that's kind of ratchet. Like I don't need that there anymore. <laughs> um, but if you see something that you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't agree with that. That sounds like blah, 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 blah is probably because it was because it was written years and years ago and I've developed and grown as a person. So have patience with me there. Um, let's see. Is there any place else? I think that that's, that that's about it. And of course my book, I won't shut up. Um, that comes out June 20th, wherever, wherever books are sold. Well, Ali Henny, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for the time. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on again. That is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. You can find the music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Thanks.